we look back into our history, the original brand campaign in 72 was everything in the middle of nowhere. And I thought about that a lot this season of, you know, while the law has changed, North Star is just still surrounded by some incredible beauty with the Mardis Valley, the Sierra Crest that you can see from our summit and Lake Tahoe. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to the land of Tahoe Giants today. Before we get to that, a quick favor. Please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is awesome. I have so much fun doing it. But the truth is, the podcast is just a small part of the storm. In fact, the podcast is just a small part of the podcast. There is an article on stormskiing.com that accompanies this and every podcast episode, which provides massive context on our conversation, including maps, charts, historical tidbits, and analysis of what makes North Star special. In addition to the podcast, I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with a minimum of 100 articles in the Storm Skiing newsletter every single year and you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Ski Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to North Star, a quick word from my sponsor, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, The ski industry has never been more competitive, and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the US and Canada, they find and negotiate with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to the team directly at ProfileSearch.com or contact them by email or phone or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at ProfileSearch International. Visit ProfileSearch.com. Episode 147, Amy Oren, Vice President and General Manager of North Star, California. Here are a couple amazing facts about North Star. Number one, the ski area really enjoyed the party in Tahoe last winter, racking up a mind-blowing 665 inches of snow. Number two, 665 is, and probably, nowhere near the record for North Star, which racked up 701 inches during the 2016-17 to ski season. This is a serious ski area, is my point. Not that you'd know it if you weren't looking closely. The vast majority of ski media attention on Tahoe goes to the Huckfest at Palisades Tahoe and Kirkwood. Heavenly, sprawling over two states just an hour south of North Star, sucks up whatever oxygen is left. 
It may sound like I'm trying to argue that a 3,200-acre Lake Tahoe ski area owned by Vail Resorts is some kind of overlooked gem, which is simultaneously absurd, but also a little true. Yes, families fill the place for its long, unintimidating runs. Park bras love the enormous terrain park, and North Star in general has no lack of skiers, particularly on weekends and holidays. But with the more advanced set focused on Palisades and Kirkwood, you can have North Star's ample and endless glades pretty much to yourself. This is a place worth a deeper look for just about any skier, and that is what we'll do with my guest today. Let's do it. My guest today is the Vice President and General Manager of North Star California. With 3,170 acres of terrain on a 2,280-foot vertical drop served by 20 lifts, North Star is the ninth largest ski area in the United States. The resort, situated in North Lake Tahoe, averages 350 inches of snowfall per winter but racked up 665 inches for the 2022-23 ski season. North Star is one of three ski areas operated by Vail Resorts in the Lake Tahoe region and one of 41 mountains that the company operates worldwide. Prior to joining the team at North Star last year, she spent three decades at Powder Core, working at Mount Bachelor, and then leading the team at Boreal, Soda Springs, and Woodward Lake Tahoe. Amy Oran is my guest. Amy, welcome to the storm. I bet it's starting to feel like winter on the North Shore of Lake Tahoe. How are you doing as you start to prep for winter? Yeah, Stuart, it is great to be here. Yesterday was the last day of our summer operation, but also felt like the first day of winter, we got a dusting of snow up on top of the peaks. And there's a lot of anticipation as to what the season is going to bring this year, coming off of just such an incredible, incredible snowfall that we had in uh, the prior year. Uh, that's exciting. Did you get snow just at the very top? Yep, just a little dusting, enough to get everybody excited and a lot of conversation around the upcoming season, which is just right around the corner. So, so I know that you're laser focused on the upcoming season and there's so much to do. We're recording this on October 2nd for those of you listening. And there's so much to do before you open, probably around Thanksgiving. But I just need to linger on last season a little bit here, Amy. 665 inches. I mean, that is just phenomenal. What was that like for you and the team on the ground to live through that kind of snowfall? Yeah, it was amazing. And I know you got to experience a little bit of it here in the peak of the season last year. Mm -hmm. We had a chance to ski around and, you know, it was so much snow and last season was our 50th anniversary and what a way to just commemorate that year it started snowing really on november 1st and it didn't stop you know typically in tahoe when we get these big snow years we have a break and this year we just really did not have a break and i was just looking at some notes from last year's kickoff with our teams and we had a couple of slides just around the excitement of the year and we had a theme of it's going to be one like no other. And that's what we were saying in you know September and October. And boy, did that come to life in such an incredible way. The conditions were great and the intensity of the snowfall, it was really all time. We had multiple storms that brought over a hundred inches in less than a week. Oh 
And there was a particular period that I think we'll never forget in this region. It was on New Year's Eve Mm -hmm. and we saw over eight inches an hour for three hours straight. And this is a record that's been defined by the central Sierra snow lab here. And our local forecasters have been talking about this ever since it happened. And you know, for our teams, this season was one of just the balance of just having to be so focused in our planning and moreover, just being, we had to be so agile. Mm-hmm. And usually that, you know, that's something we're really good at. And this season, it was the pressure test of just how agile we needed to be. And the teams here were just so resilient and it just took so much endurance and it took courage. And I think we're really proud of what we achieved coming together to make so many decisions on how to operate and how to do it safely. I look back frequently, I think we all do, you know, just the astonishing amount of snow that we had, not just at our resorts that we were managing, but our commutes and at Mm -hmm. home. And, you know, there's such good storytelling through the photos that we would be sharing around. And it was a great way to keep our spirits up where it was, you know, so intense. And it was definitely, there's some comical moments of, you know, getting lost in your own neighborhood because you just, there's no landmarks and everything is buried and people are walking out of three-story windows and you you had to really get creative to make it all work. And I was reflecting just recently with some of my colleagues here and I feel like every morning started with a text thread, you know, usually first kind of tying in with Tom Fortune at Heavenly and Mm -hmm. Matt Jones at Kirkwood and myself with just a report out of the impacts of another massive storm, each building in intensity with every foot of snowfall. And, you know, the photos were jaw dropping, but it's something that I'm so glad to have had where we're just not alone in this and we got through it all together. There was a period in March, and I think it was about the time that you visited North Star and the Tahoe region, and we were skiing around and recognizing that, you know, not only are we above the trail signs and the buildings, but mm-hmm. there are places we're above the, the forest ground. Um, <laughs> and we just completed through our state association, Ski California, where we, we produce a little season yearbook that just shares mm-hmm. the images of the member resorts in California and just looking through the deck, there's just this balance of emotion and extremes and hard work, teamwork, celebration, and, you know, just the memories that came out of the season. They're going to last a long time. Yeah. Part of that, ta- that March tour, when you and Ashley took me around the mountain was just pointing out all of the things that normally were way above ground that are below. And I'll never forget, we were standing by the Comstock Express, that new six pack that North Star put up last year. And you said, oh yeah, by the way, this lift sits on level ground. And it was sitting in a snow canyon that was way up over our heads. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is insane. I mean, not only did you get a lot of snow, Amy, but it was really good snow. And as I mentioned in the intro, you've been in Tahoe for a long time, working at some of the smaller ski areas. Talk about the quality of the snow you got in Tahoe this past winter and what a difference that made. It was a unique season in the Sierra and, you know, the intensity was so real. And part of that intensity came from, as you're saying, it it just stayed cold. The snow came in cold. It stayed cold. Early season was cold, which just brought us, you know, ideal snowmaking conditions just right out of the start. And it stayed cold all the way through <laughs> I mean, really May and June as well. And, you know, the amount of high quality 
powder days were kind of the top of all time. I was recalling a couple of days of skiing in February with some friends and getting fresh tracks off of Marta's lift. And Mm -hmm. I remember just getting on the chairlift and it was one of those runs where you just have, you have no words and all you can do is like smile and laugh and look around and you know, the difference between this season and some of the bigger seasons we've had, like 16, 17 was a really big season as well, that in a lot of ways conditioned us to be ready for historic levels of snowfall. But the difference in that season is it was a lot warmer. And Mm -hmm. while we had similar levels of snow in 16, 17, we also had 40 inches of rain on top Mm. of all that snow and you know that made for really unique challenges with a lot of flooding and a lot of roof loading and just Mm -hmm. loading of the snowpack in general and this season the snowpack it just didn't it didn't reduce it just Mm -hmm. stayed this high volume snow all year and we're very challenged in these years with finding places to put it, you know, Mm -hmm. snow removal and snow storage becomes really a game of chess and you have to be three or four moves ahead of, of what's next to make room for the next incoming storm. But two unique seasons that had very similar challenges that, you know, to have two seasons like these two in five years, it's pretty remarkable. Given the choice, Amy, you could have a typical season, like a 350 inch season in North Star or a big one like last winter. Which do you pick? Because there's, I'd imagine there's a lot of excitement and energy around getting a big snow year, but it's probably also pretty exhausting. So, so are you hoping for another big year this year? Are you hoping that maybe it tapers off and you have a little bit more of a typical 350 inch Tahoe winter? Well, if I can put a third option on the table, I would say somewhere between the two, but because you're teeing up a spectrum of decisions here, we would take an average season Mm -hmm. all year long. And I know, you know, personally love, love the amounts of snow, love the tree skiing, but an average season in Tahoe, if we get the 350, 400 it's a great year. You know, that is a year where we can get everything open. That's a year where we get a good amount of powder. And the ideal for us is really, you know, if you look back to that 15-16 season where we had above average snowfall, we had cold snowfall, we had, you know, adequate breaks in between to recover. That's what we're asking for. Some of the locals are starting to say it's starting to feel a bit like 15-16. So we'll keep our, we'll keep manifesting uh, that condition. All right. Fingers crossed. Well, you're a Tahoe veteran working at a bunch of different ski areas in the area, as I mentioned in the intro. Did you grow up in the area, Amy? Where did you grow up? Did you grow up skiing? I did. I grew up in Salt Lake City. And actually, Mm -hmm. I was kind of split between Salt Lake City and Moab, Utah. And Mm -hmm. we were a skiing family. And our go-to places at the time were big and little Cottonwood Canyons just right out of Salt Lake City there. And as a young family, it's really how we found ourselves and the Wasatch Range and our heritage in Moab. It's where we spent our time and skiing and sandstone. Those were just really our places of being. And, you know, we would get into my mom's VW bug and mm-hmm. head up a canyon. And I, wow. I know you and your listeners are really familiar with, with those canyons. Mm-hmm. And remarkably, we would always make it up and down without the advantages that we have <laughs> um, these days. We'd never had the right tires or the right. gear or the plan or even the skill 
And <laughs> I think my brothers and I look back and laugh and, you know, every single lift ride with my mom was one that would just, you know, be what we would now call like an incident. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> she just, you know, so spirited, uh, definitely not a skiing athlete, but you know, her spirit and her humor was how it just became such a part of our family. And I just remember the lift team at Brighton, they knew our family and they knew my mom and they would just like be ready for right. <laughs> whatever was going to happen on the load ramp or the unload ramp. And they were just so humorous and willing to get us up the lifts weekend after weekend. And, you know, we'd head back to Salt Lake and make a plan for the next weekend. And, you know, it was just something that we look back of just so formative and where we are today as a family. God, that's so amazing. That sounds like so much fun. You know, humor me on this for a moment, if you would, Amy. I hosted Dave Fields, the general manager of Snowbird on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he took us through the kind of history of Utah skiing as it relates to what it was and what it is today and how the crowding kind of built up. And he really pinpointed the 2002 Olympics as a turning point. And then obviously you had the arrival of the Icon Pass and just the explosive growth in Salt Lake City in general. And all these things have contributed to a very different ski experience than the one you're describing, right? Or at least a different commuting experience and a different experience on the hill with the crowds and everything else. Just take us back. What were big and little Cottonwood Canyons like back then? What was it like to ski there? What were the crowds like? Just give us the atmosphere that you remember from being there growing up. I love that you bring up the connection with Snowbird and Dave Fields. And mm -hmm. funny enough, Dave Fields and I went to school together from wow. kindergarten through uh, really the end of high school. Oh, no way. Uh, That's so cool. Yeah, our, our families, you know, in early Salt Lake had came together and created this really unique magnet type school that actually okay. still exists in Salt Lake City. And so... Dave and I go way, way back. Oh, wow. um, That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, so it's always just fun to catch up and, <sighs> and reminisce. And to your question of what it was like at the time, you know, obviously Salt Lake has changed a lot. That whole Utah Valley has changed a lot. However, what has not changed is just how incredibly stunning stunningly beautiful those canyons are. I'm also a rock climber and mm. looking up at the granite up in Little Cottonwood Canyon, I get really nostalgic of mm. what that used to feel like when we were young and just finding our way through the mountains. And I think as you can imagine, just like a lot of places in our industry and a lot of beloved natural environments, we're sharing them with people. And, mm -hmm. you know, back then we used to ski on Wednesdays and Sundays. I'm not entirely sure why, why Wednesdays. <laughs> I think there was probably some local deal or something, okay. but it was pretty rare to get in a line back mm -hmm, then right. when we were skiing there. It was everything that we loved about it then is still there today. And just mm -hmm. the the access out of Salt Lake and just the proximity to Salt Lake City, you know, the Wasatch Range is pretty special and pretty mm -hmm. spectacular. And that's something that every time I go back there, I just get overwhelmed with nostalgia for what a big part of my life that is. Yeah, it sounds like it was a major part of your childhood and a very consistent one. And I, I think that's what builds skiers is that consistency. Thinking back, was there a moment when you knew that Skiing was not just going to be recreation for you, but it was going to be a career. Was there a moment when you knew you were going to work in skiing? And then what was your first job actually in skiing? 
I don't know if it was an exact moment in time, but I think it was over a journey and my start and really the formative part of my career in the industry was in ski and ride schools. I have a decades long career in ski and ride schools that began with teaching skiing at Mount Bachelor. Like a lot of people, you know, I started with just teaching, teaching little ones. And I remember early on just having so much passion for introducing people to a sport that it had been so impressionable in my life and seeing a family come to the mountains for the first time and leave feeling like they're part of something like our mountain culture. I think that is the moment where I really just kind of fell in love with the industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I also really loved with the ski and ride development, there was just a culture and a pathway to progress through the development process with you know, some of the educational organizations like PSI, AASI, and really integrated into that pathway and just had a lot of passion for it and, you know, managed to to get level three in both Alpine and Telemark. And I think really importantly, my leadership journey went hand in hand with my Kind of personal progression in mountain sports. And, you know, in the early 20s, I found the sport of rock climbing mm-hmm. and it immediately became how I spent all my time and definitive of who I am. And, you know, climbing is just such a demanding sport and, you know, it just takes so much focus. And, you know, it was really through the sport that I I found my role as a leader mm-hmm. and, you know, you find your voice and your confidence and climbing also gave me kind of a unique sense of just being able to see possibilities mm-hmm. and, you know, how to push your boundaries. And, you know, when you start on a route, it looks and feels impossible and you figure out a single move or a sequence and how to put it all together And I think that really translated into being passionate about leading in Mm -hmm. the ski industry of just that mentality of seeing possibilities and helping someone to see their possibilities through, through sport. And that period of my life is where all of those things came together to show me that this is where I was going to be for a long time. So I think no one would have blamed you for sticking around Salt Lake and the Wasatch and Obviously, that's the path that Dave took. What actually took you up to Oregon and Bachelor? And and what was Bachelor and and Bend like at the time? Because those are also places that have changed quite a bit over the last few decades. But what were they like when you arrived there and what took you up there? Climbing and skiing Mm -hmm. is what was a visit turned into an idea of, wow, what would it be like to live here? And (laughs) Yeah, 25 years later. Um, I mean, it, it was it was awesome. As you know, you know, Bachelor is just such an amazing mountain. And, you know, Bend at the time, it was such a small town. It was 20,000 people. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're familiar with Bend, like the hospital was the edge of the east side of town and mm-hmm. the west really didn't go beyond Century Drive, which mm-hmm. is the you know main thoroughfare up to Bachelor. And there were no roundabouts at that time, <laughs> okay. which is that's a milestone. If you know Bend, it's roundabout <laughs> Mecca. And when I moved from there, I remember I went through eight roundabouts to get to work and not a <laughs> wow. single stoplight, which is great. But you know, yeah. it was really a community that was even at the time, you know, it was really centered around the mountain itself. And mm-hmm. most people had a story that was grounded in 
the ski resort and that being part of why they live in the Cascades. And it was such a great place to be over time, you know, as Ben just evolved to become really an outdoor Mecca and people mm-hmm. were moving there for mountain biking and beer tourism became yeah. a thing, which is booming up there <laughs> still. But, you know, Bachelor is just such a, a skiers mountain and riders mountain. And in the nineties, it was pretty under the radar. I mean, it was known in the Northwest, but largely undiscovered. And at the same time, that time at Mount Bachelor, there was just an early culture of innovation and early adoption. Mm-hmm. And as you probably are aware, just the, the rapid investment into high-speed lifts was really ahead of the industry. And But as was, you know, the embracing of the snowboarding and terrain parks and mm-hmm. endemic events. And it was a fun thing to be a part of as particularly, you know, an, a really influential part of that period was some of our mentors, my mentors at Powder, including our founder, they were just really out front in the vision of youth programming mm-hmm. and the conversion of new skiers and riders. And I remember, you know, just such a great time when our founder, John Cumming, had just a really clear mission around our role in creating skiers and riders. And he just challenged us all to be thinking that way and to create pipelines at our markets that would bring, you know, long-term impact into the resort. And that's just that was a period I've looked back really fondly of, you know, putting together a conversion program that is still in place today up there. So from one outdoor Mecca to the next, you move from Bend to Tahoe and go on to work at Soda Springs, Boreal, and eventually the Woodward Complex. Now, now these are, statistically speaking, much smaller ski areas than Bachelor, but they have a strong role in that conversion narrative that you just spoke to. What drew you down to Tahoe, Amy? And what was it like to work at those three ski areas or two ski areas rather? Yeah. And I I think to your question of what compelled me away from Bend, it was, it was tough. And I remember having a conversation with Jody of Jody Church, who you, who Mm -hmm. you've spoken to is, um, I don't know if I can leave Bend. And she just said, well, Mm -hmm. wait till you wait till you get to Tahoe and then we'll talk So Woodward Tahoe opened in 2012 and Mm -hmm. Jody Turich had just transitioned to the COO role for Woodward. And I had the opportunity to be her successor at those businesses. And as you said, you know, while they're very different amongst themselves, they also had a lot of synergy in such a unique way. They complemented not only each other, but the competitive landscape in Tahoe and Mm -hmm. these three distinct brands and businesses had, you know, they had a shared vision around growing our sports and Mm -hmm. really through innovative youth programming. And it was really one of the most rewarding experiences I've had in a time where, you know, the brand of Woodward was relatively new to mountain sports and to powder as a differentiator. And over that time, you know, we built out the Woodward Tahoe facility and integrated the brand and the programming into the resort, you know, to, to your remark, just the ability to introduce so many new populations 
through the sport in, you know, such an innovative way. It was a time that I really feel honored to have been a part of. And, you know, in 2021, my role evolved to oversee what we called the Woodward Mountain Centers of Tahoe and the new location of Park City. And I just love too how Woodward Park City has kind of found their unique in that market and bringing so many youth into mountain sports and action sports. Yeah, the Woodward brand is really interesting and really progressive. And I think it was really one of Powder's best ideas. You know, Jody Church, who you mentioned, ended up leaving Powder and going to work for Vail. And she now runs Breckenridge. And she was on this podcast earlier this year. And you had the same opportunity last year, a similar opportunity, rather, and were able to join the team at North Star. So it sounded like you had a pretty good career going at Powder. You'd worked there a long time. And it sounds like you really liked a lot of the things that that company was doing. What was appealing about the North Star job to you, Amy? And ultimately, why did you decide to move across town to take it? Yeah, and I love just the theme around, you know, Jody and I have just connected and <laughs> it's so many ways we yeah. Yeah. But one thing I love about this industry is, you know, while we're competitive, we're also a community and I find a lot of value and growth and, you know, being active with our partner associations and organizations like NSAA and Ski California. And, you know, it was really through those channels that I had the opportunity to get to know so many of the great leaders who were in the Tahoe region at the Three Vale Resorts. And you know, one of the first people I met in Ski California was Bill Rock and, mm -hmm. you know, so many great leaders that have been in this Tahoe network. And the last few years, I worked really closely with Tom Fortune, who is mm -hmm. not only the COO of Heavenly, but also oversees the Tahoe region. And when Deidre Walsh moved from North Star to Park City, Tom called me and, you know, I was really compelled by a couple of things. One, my love of North Star itself and, you know, very much the appreciation for the talented leaders that I have worked with over a handful of years. And, you know, obviously a, a tough decision, but North Star has such strength in my areas of passion in sport culture, in progression programming and mm -hmm. terrain. And for me, just developing pathways for people to grow and find themselves and their journey through sport progression. It's just such a part of my leadership purpose. And it felt like a crossroads where I could do that in, in a new way. How important was your experience having run Boyle and Woodward, which really are, it's the only night skiing operation in Tahoe, and they're really known for that parks culture. But North Star also has a really strong parks culture. And of the Three Vale Resorts in the region, it's the one where that, that really has that strong, extensive parks. How crucial was that, Amy, to both for, for you being the right leader for North Star from Vale Resorts point of view, and it appealing to you as this a big mountain that also had this vigorous youth culture that focused on this progression in these parks. Yeah, I love that question. And I think my background, not only was it just part of passion and my decision making, you know, I think that background really gives rise to excitement and opportunity mm -hmm. just to further focus these elements. It's what North Star is known for in so many ways. And our parks, both winter and in our bike park in the summer, are really integral to the brand. And I think there's a really complementary connection between the elevated experience that North Star is also known for, but it's also core to North Star, this mountain sport culture that is either as a participant or 
something you aspire to be a part of. And, you know, our North Star Parks and our North Star teams, I think are both experiences and brands that they build a lot of affinity and aspiration to our current and our future guests. And, you know, that specific just mountain sport culture has a lot of appeal to youth. And in a time where youth participation is not growing, this part of our brand is just a really important part of our future. And I have a lot of excitement in combining my background and passion with a team here that is so excited to innovate and to to continue to be leaders in this space. We've got a pretty great thing going here. So the parks culture is super special and the mountain bike element of that in the summer is pretty cool as well. But help us out here, Amy, because from a distance, Tahoe can be a little overwhelming. There's just there's so many ski areas, so many good ski areas. Not only do you have your sister resorts in Heavenly and Kirkwood, but you have Palisades Tahoe, which is one of the largest ski resorts and most legendary ski resorts in the United States. You have these big independents like Homewood and Sugar Bowl and Mount Rose and Diamond Peak and Sierra Tahoe. And then you have a bunch of little specialized places like Boreal and Soda Springs. So out of all of that, as you look at that landscape and all those choices. I think there's 16 or 17 of them in the region. And I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. What makes North Star stand out even in a place that has so many good, big, famous ski areas? Yeah, there's a lot going on in the industry up here in Tahoe. And, you know, to your point, one thing I like about this region is that the leaders in this landscape have done a really great job over time of having their uniques and, you know, having their uniques to their unique markets. And mm-hmm. for me, I used to ski at North Star a ton before I worked here mm-hmm. in Verbal. And top of my list, I would come here because of just the sense of place and, mm-hmm. you know, the start to finish experience experience here is I think what makes North Star so special, you know, between the diversity of our terrain and some of the fun traditions on the mountain, like Toast, and this incredibly beautiful village here at the base. We have obviously a lot of elements around the resort that you know, make for an elevated experience that is unmatched in our region. But, you know, I think a lot of our guests will also say the approachability of our resort and terrain. And, you know, when you get into the village and up onto the slopes, in a lot of ways, it feels kind of transformative. You get away from it all, everything you're Mm -hmm. talking about in Tahoe and you're off the highway and you're out of the bustle that can be the Tahoe region. And I love seeing families that are just discovering a mountain experience as part of North Star. And, you know, as our 50th, and we look back into our history, the original brand campaign in 72 was everything in the middle of nowhere. And I thought about that a lot this season of, you know, while the law has changed, North Star is just still surrounded by some incredible beauty with the Martis Valley, the Sierra Crest that you can see from our summit and from the ridges and Lake Tahoe. And, you know, but I think we have to call out too, you and I got to experience the tree skiing and just yeah. natural beauty is mm-hmm. phenomenal here. You know, another thing I was impressed by, Amy, that I wasn't really aware of is the day I visited you, I actually skied at Palisades Tahoe on the Palisades side that morning. And as anyone who skied at Palisades Tahoe knows, it's very exposed, uh, especially in the upper reaches and the Red Dog Lift was open, but pretty much all the other high speeds, including the gondola connecting to Alpine Meadows were closed. So I get over to North Star and everything's open. 
and the place is empty and it's great conditions and we're just skiing all around and all the lifts are open. You're really wind protected there. And I didn't realize that until I got on the ground. Talk about that a little bit. What can you tell us about North Star's advantages on those windy days, which are not too rare in Tahoe? Yeah, I mean, I think that is another key part of the strength of North Star, just consistency. And, you know, we hear that a lot from our community of just the consistency that we have here. And as you point out, ironically, when you have these huge snow years, it can put a lot of challenges from access to backups with operations that we dig out. And to that end, it can be challenging. This last year, it really just showcased just how well positioned North Star is to have that consistency. And, you know, the patterns of the storms that hit the Sierra, they're fairly predictable. And they can Mm -hmm. also just like any weather system, they can be unpredictable. And we had significantly less impacts just given our position. And when the winds hit the crest, they pause and they lose a little bit of energy. And with winds come impacts to power. And then that's been something that's a big thing to manage in these really active winters. But given our position with winds, but also just our terrain, you know, we have less avalanche mitigation at our resort and our access routes. So there are resorts that really have got to manage avalanche terrain above their roads. And while we had plenty of significant challenges in digging out our access and our facilities, but we also had, you know, we just had this incredibly long season with mm-hmm. early opening and late closing. And this was a year of most operating days that we're able to look back and see. So yeah, a lot of it is just being the location where we are just right here out of Truckee, a little bit different. So clearly it's a unique place among all those different Tahoe resorts. And there's so much you can control about that narrative and some of it's beyond your control. But within the Vail portfolio, it's interesting that Vail has three ski areas in the Tahoe region. And they're not next right next to each other, but you can get between all of them pretty easily. And I think North Star is less than an hour from Heavenly and Kirkwood's maybe 20, 30 minutes from there, depending on the road conditions. As you talk internally to Tom Fortune and your other colleagues, How much do you talk about that of setting up different identities for the ski areas among Epic Pass holders who are maybe thinking about a vacation to Tahoe, don't really know which one to pick, which one would be best suited for their family? How much time do you spend on that? And how much do you just let the unique attributes of the ski areas kind of speak for themselves? Because they are just so different. Really, the only thing they have in common from my point of view is that they're owned by Vail. I would say it's it's closer to the latter of what mm-hmm. you're articulating and that it's more of, I would just say, an organic differentiation mm-hmm. where I think the natural environment and the brand experiences are more complementary to each other than mm-hmm. substitutions on, on each other. And I think we have naturally a pretty great strategic compass in that way. And I think part of it is like, we have optionality when these storms materialize in different mm-hmm. ways. And I think we were able to really show that this year and that the microclimates, the storms really happen different ways. But I think the diversity in our experiences are naturally there and the unique attributes are very organic. And I, I think we as a team, what we talk about is, you know, how do we double down on what we're best at and not try to recreate what, you know, another resort in the region is great at. But I also think to that, it's so great to have a regional team and, Mm -hmm. you know, having Tom and Matt as colleagues, you know, there's a lot that I think we 
we lean on each other for operationally and with our teams. I think, you know, anytime we have a vacancy or a need, the teams lean in and Mm -hmm. that is such a great thing to have. But I think the real message there is like, let's know how we're different and let's Mm -hmm. be the best at what makes us unique. Do you find that a lot of your guests, Amy, when they come out from somewhere else outside of the region, do they try to hit all three or do they set up shop and, and really have a preference for one or the other? A little bit of both. Anecdotally, I rode on the chairlift lots of times this last year and, you know, had that conversation. And I think this year, maybe more than others, we saw movement around the region as people Mm -hmm. were finding ways to get access. But I think especially those that are in our markets here in the drive market, it's pretty common to visit all three resorts throughout the season. You know, one other thing that sets North Star apart, Amy, from a lot of its big peers in the West is that it doesn't sit on forest service land, which can be an advantage in some ways as far as getting things approved and just big projects. There's just less bureaucracy. Not that the forest service hasn't been a good partner because there's plenty of construction going on on forest service lands across the West, but North Star doesn't have to deal with that. And so, so who actually does own that land? And my understanding, Amy, is that it's actually not Vale, that someone else owns this and Vale, in fact, is the operator of the ski resort and not the owner. Yeah. And, you know, Stuart, I've had the opportunity, I think, to work under all of the land management structures, whether whether it's federal lands through the Forest Service or fully privately owned or a leased operation like North Star. And our landowner is EPR, and they have a handful of ski resorts, the majority, you know, being in the Northeast. And they're a really great partner. You know, with EPR, we have just a high level of collaboration and a high level of trust. And I think that trust is just built on just the shared goals of, you know, North Star being the best it can be. And I connect really frequently with EPR and they're just so in support of our operation and autonomy to know, you know, what the best decision for the resort and for the company are. And we're really lucky to have them as a partner. So if you want to do something like, let's say that Comstock Express that you upgraded last year from a high-speed quad to a high-speed six-pack, is there an approval process? Is there a board of directors? Do you do they just kind of hand you the keys and say, you know, don't break it? Or how, how does that whole relationship work in the instance of something like a chairlift upgrade? Yeah, and I think the upgrade really more of a conversation of awareness of this is what we're upgrading, you know, while the it, entire Comstock chairlift was upgraded and new. The terrain and the alignment stayed very much the same. It's more mm-hmm. when we get into expansions that that process is more formalized, but the shared interest and conversation, they're so supportive. So North Star does have a pretty interesting master plan, even though you're not on forest service land. And the copy that I have is a little more than a decade old, but oftentimes these things just take time. And and I understand that they change over time, but I'm curious about a few potential expansions that are on this old master plan, Amy. There's several of them. One is on Sawtooth Ridge, shows a couple lifts going up there. Another one would be Lookout Mountain. And uh, a new lift that would go all the way from the base up to the top and some trails there. Uh, Another one, Looker's Left of Vista Express and the Sawmill Terrain. There's another lift and trails going there. All this potential expansions. What can you tell us about the current state of North Star's thinking 
around potentially expanding into these regions with lifts and cut trails. I realize a lot of them right now are sort of backcountry experiences and you can go in there and they funnel back to the lifts. But but as you think long term, what's the current thinking around any of those expansion projects? The master plan, this is a, a, a 2017 version, you know, that was really contemplated as a 20 year vision for the mm-hmm. resort, 20 ish years. And I think it's it remains very, very valid today. Mm-hmm. And the way a 20-year plan is intended, it just provides for phasing flexibility. But I think it remains very relevant in how we see future expansions unfolding. And while plans are fluid as things evolve and we evolve, you know, we're really excited about a couple of elements in that plan. Just a quick note on the plan, the the elements over this 20-year plan, we have some that are at what we call the project level, meaning that they're farther along in the approval process. And then there are those that are more of a programming level that are more future-oriented and take longer time and, and more mm-hmm. planning. But a couple that we're really excited about that might speak to, you know, how we look at it from a priority standpoint there's what we call the J lift. And this is the one that you're talking about that comes, it's the out of base access mm-hmm. lift that yeah. comes from the West end of the village. It terminates near the top of lookout and that lift is really compelling and that it gives not only new terrain, but also additional access to the backside into lookout. Mm-hmm. And as you know, that's just such an incredible part of our mountain and, mm-hmm. you know, that directs the access there is it's pretty exciting. And then, you know, following that, the lift that you're speaking to on the eastern slopes of North Star, this is to the lookers left mm-hmm. of Vista. You know, this is a really compelling project that not only increases circulation by adding terrain, it's also adding diverse terrain. And there's just really great tree skiing in that mm-hmm. pod back there. And you know, moreover, it's just got this fantastic sense of place. You know, it's one of the more beautiful parts of the mountain. You you can see the lake from mm-hmm. many of those vistas. And the bottom terminal is down near Sawmill Lake, mm-hmm. which is just such a beautiful part of the resort. And then, you know, the lift network in the Sawtooth Ridge area, that is such an exciting piece to look at, you know, probably longer into our future but it contemplates two lifts and a surface toe to unlock tree skiing. And if you're familiar with the Tahoe region, it has a really great vibe back there. It's secluded. Mm-hmm. It feels a little bit more backcountry and just kind of removed from the resort's core. And I just love how this master plan just contemplate those three examples just have such diversity and opportunity of, you know, what North Star will look like over the, the next couple of decades. So as you contemplate these expansions, Amy, and obviously capital is is an important consideration. I hosted your colleague, Chris Sorensen, the current leader of Keystone on this podcast a few weeks back, and we talked a lot about the Bergman Bowl expansion. And I asked him if Keystone's goal was to draw more skiers or just spread skiers out better who are already on the mountain. And he said it was the latter. He said they just want to create a better experience. So looking at this in North Star and Tahoe, what are the big things that need to happen to make any of these expansions happen? Do you have to get your visitorship up, your skier days up a little bit and, and try to justify the need for more terrain? Is it more about just getting the, the capital and kind of waiting your turn in this bail portfolio? Because obviously there's a lot of competing demands within it. What are the things that need to happen to make any of these expansions move forward? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot in there and a lot in that question. And I, I think all of those things are are fairly true, but to break it down a little bit, you know, this is a pretty comprehensive master plan by design and anything on the scale, it takes time and it mm-hmm. definitely takes a lot of capital. I think the other thing, as far as the visitation model, there's a lot to be said when you have a lot of consistency. And I think that's a big piece of this is the consistency in the visitation that I think has been really helped by, you know, we're seeing a lot of additional midweek visitation, Mm -hmm. especially this last year, you know, we've got people that have a lot more flexibility, but it takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of capital, but I think that the consistency that the visitation in our region is seeing is certainly to our advantage in demonstrating the potential and the timeliness of looking at what project is next. Which of these of the the sawmill and the lookout mountain lift, which of those do you think is a higher priority and that we're more likely to see movement on first? I think the right now, what how we're looking at this is the again, what we call the J lift that mm-hmm. um, is the, the lookout mountain piece, you know, for us, that really provides, you know, more accessibility to mm-hmm. our visitorship, getting people up and out of the village. That is an area that we see this as a great opportunity to help support, but also, you know, just for all the reasons that we were articulating of just what makes Northstar so special is that accessibility piece. And for our writers that love the backside and mm-hmm. Mardis, it's such a direct way to get up and over there. So I think it serves those two markets in such a great way. Right now, that is our, our highest priority on the master plan. And I realize that you're probably considering a lot of different options, but as far as a line for that lift, where do you think that it would load? Where do you think it would land? Would it go up to Drifter so, so folks can get down easily from there? Or, or would it land somewhere else? It basically terminates closer to the top of Lookout. And Mm -hmm. the alignment here at the base, if you can picture just the west end of the village there, that's where the bottom alignment would start. Mm -hmm. Nice. And would you still need the Lookout link lift? I mean, that would still have validity for those that are coming from the other slopes of the mountain. All right. So lots of exciting projects that are in this master plan. As we look at this, and I'll include this map in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com, but does that basically represent the limits of EPR's current land holdings or, or there is there potential development even beyond that? We have a lot of acreage here at North Shore. We manage close to 8,000 acres. And, you know, I think this master plan contemplates, you know, really the most impactful opportunities and projects that we have for future longer term planning. And as you know, over time, once this master plan is developed, there is optionality to look at it, but we've got quite a bit in front of us with Mm -hmm. the current master plan. How about within your current footprint, Amy, the Village Express, for example, is a high-speed quad out of your base and it runs next to that big Springs Express gondola, obviously on on an angle. It really just serves as an out-of-base people mover, but there's some nice gentle terrain under there. Is that terrain, that woods, a spot where you would be able to develop more terrain? Or is there a reason why that hasn't been developed and it, and it just isn't right for it? Yeah, I love that question. And I'll, I'll be honest, this is a question I asked in you know one of our first busy periods mm-hmm. of, wow, this, this terrain is actually really great. Why are mm-hmm. more people <laughs> over here? And 
you know, I do think that potential exists to further develop that terrain. And it, it's compelling because right now that lift really is utilized as an out of village upload. And I think getting the awareness of just how great that terrain is, you know, it, it probably is going to take some widening and some additional mm-hmm. runs there. And so it is something that it has been discussed in, in consideration especially as, you know, so much of our programming is growing. We have such an incredible, you know, ski and ride lesson division. Mm -hmm. And we have had some discussions around using that venue in a different way for that population where that terrain is so ideal. I think it's a really great question because the potential is there. All right, let's talk about Comstock. So for the 2022 to 23 ski season, as part of its Epic Lift Upgrade program of 21 new lifts across North America. Vale upgraded the Comstock Express from a high-speed quad to a high-speed six-pack. How happy are you with that upgrade, Amy, and how impactful was it? We got to kick off uh, the opening of Comstock with the opening of our 50th year, which is, mm-hmm. you know, looking back on last year, it was a pretty great moment and one that I have such a great memory of, you know, getting that lift open and mm-hmm. we got to ride it together. And, yeah. you know, it's been a significant upgrade to the guest experience, you know, moving from a high speed four to a high speed six, it's really significant in just getting additional upload on our mountain and, Mm -hmm. you know, equating to just additional laps on some of our most beloved terrain off the summit. And what a year for, (laughs) you know, for this lift with just the incredible snowfall that we had, you know, Comstock, it accesses such great terrain, but it's also, it's a circulation hub for getting Mm -hmm. people out to other terrain. And we saw a reduction in wait times, um, Mm -hmm. but we also saw And I had so many conversations with people that would say that, you know, they just up and over to backside earlier Mm -hmm. in the day and, you know, not waiting for upload congestion Mm -hmm. to to process. And it's such an incredible lift. And I think it really, it just shows that this is just a significant investment in the future here at North Star. And it was a great year to, you know, the snowfall that we had this season gave us an opportunity to really pressure test this upgrade. And it's been a a game changer for that part of the mountain. How did the upgrade for Comstock impact the rendezvous lift? So that's the oldest lift on the mountain, the oldest chairlift on the mountain. It's an old Yon triple, serves East Ridge. Probably there's an argument you could make that it's now redundant because of Comstock, but what was the reality like on the ground? Do you still like Rendezvous? Is it still have a place at North Star? Yeah, so Rendezvous, while it is technically has redundancy with Comstock, what Rendez has going for it is, you know, it's lappable mm-hmm. on that ridge, which is such a lappable favorite and a way to stay up on the ridge. It definitely relieves some pressure to the Comstock lift and you know, this year, case in point, it was such a great way to to lap tree skiing and powder. That said, that lift also got absolutely buried this year <laughs> and was difficult to, you know, just the the layout, it was difficult to kind of keep up above the surface. And, you know, I would say right now, there's no consideration to move rendezvous. And mm-hmm. perhaps there is a time in the future where it upgrades to a detached because it's kind of a unique experience up there. And I know if you talk to a lot of our most passionate tree skiers, their rendezvous is close to their hearts. And yeah, maybe there's a time in the future where it, it is upgraded. 
Wow, so it sounds like rendezvous is safe. You know, your lift fleet overall at North Star Amy is in really good shape. Pretty much everything on the mountain is less than 30 years old, and most of it is substantially newer than that. Still, it's a big mountain and lots of needs. So as you survey the mountain, what's your wish list? What would you like to upgrade? Yeah, I mean, following the upgrade of Comstock that we had this year, we've got a, a vast lift network. And, you know, when we look at prioritizations, it's really going to be the earlier lifts that are, mm-hmm. are going to be considered for replacement or for upgrade for efficiency as we see necessary over time. And, you know, the most likely next for upgrade are going to be Vista mm-hmm. and Arrow. I think another, a couple of things that we are considering over the long term is, you know, I think good candidates for a similar upgrade like we did with Comstock mm-hmm. of going from a four person to a six person lift oh. would be Vista, but also backside. And I mm. think it's going to be really interesting to see how this contemplation overlays with our master plan and mm-hmm. the addition of lifts that we're considering. As, as you look at those two, Vista and backside, I, I have to think that Vista would get more usage as the park lift. Is is that true? Is that one maybe more of a priority just because it really is the workhorse for that terrain, park terrain? Absolutely. And that said, with just the amount of interest and ridership that we have, not only in our parks over there, but also mm-hmm. our competition venues, mm-hmm. our North Star Teams Foundation has just an incredible facility of trails and infrastructure over there. Mm -hmm. And that terrain is highly, highly beloved and utilized. And that said, to your point, this would be the highest priority on our list. So I, you know, your take on rendezvous is super interesting to me. It's a, it's a short lift, 646 vertical feet, but it sounds like it's really beloved in that it serves a very important purpose on the mountain. As you look around North Star, are there any other little pods where maybe you could drop a fixed grip lift or, or maybe even a T-bar that you could create a little pod like that to just lap some really good terrain? Is there, is there anywhere else on the mountain where that would be suitable? I mean, I think the master plan is really thoughtful in mm-hmm. that specific question and it counts, accounts for the most impactful projects. And I think the, you know, that, that sawmill pod, it does mm-hmm. have a surface so contemplated in there. Nice. And I think that is well-defined as the most compelling opportunity. How about, Amy, the last element of the master plan I want to ask you about, this potential Castle Peak transport gondola, which would really act more as a commuter lift than a ski lift, very similar to the gondola at Heavenly that takes folks up from from town up to the top, and then you ski around and take the gondola back down at the end of the day. And this one would go from the Castle Peak parking area up to North Star Village. Is that still in contemplation? Is, Is that an idea that has any kind of momentum? You know, it is a vision that Mm -hmm. is still valid and still on the table. Mm -hmm. You know, this is obviously significant infrastructure and an important part of the master plan to solve to is just our circulation and Mm -hmm. our, our access from arrival off of the primary interstates and the secondary highways you know, I think it's pretty known that this region is experiencing a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. And this is a long-term solve and a very big 
project. And so still on the table, what we're really focused on this year is, you know, we have an arrival strategy that Mm -hmm. um, I think you and I discussed while you were here for your visit that, you know, seeks to solve what we have the ability to solve in the shorter term as we look at how to make impacts over the next couple of decades with the arrival and upload. So an important part of that arrival plan for this year, as I understand it, is a paid parking plan. And Heavenly and Kirkwood are also instituting versions of this, as is your competitor, Palisades Tahoe. So clearly there's some congestion, regional issues that everyone is is dealing with in their own way. So tell us about this plan, Amy. Why are you doing it? How will it work? And how much will it cost? Yeah. So this winter we're offering, you know, several choices for parking with a combination of both free and paid Mm -hmm. options. And one of the best elements of this strategy is it's now reservations based paid Mm -hmm. parking. So it's weekends and peak periods. And if you're familiar as you are with Mm -hmm. our layout, this really applies to our village view and the Mm -hmm. lots that are right here just next to the village. And the reason for this program, as I think there's a lot of awareness in this region, is just road congestion and parking challenges are just such an important issue for us to solve too with our community. Um, And it's been this way for quite some time. And I think last winter, with just the incredible conditions and the high demand, it was challenging. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you put snow impacts onto those roads and this was deeply felt across all of our community. And I think this is really solutions oriented in looking at what we can impact right now and a little bit more detail around that. So for our paid program in Village View, reservations are required on weekends and peak periods, mm-hmm. but only until one o'clock and they'll be available online through the reservation system at the start of the season. I think it's important to know that we also have a lot of free options. Anybody who comes after one o'clock any day of the week, it's free. It's also free if you carpool. You can get mm-hmm. a reservation for free for Village View mm-hmm. if you have four or more people per car. If you have less than four people, it's $20 and mm-hmm. you get a reservation. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that we've heard from some of the pilot programs, specifically referencing Park City that rolled out Mm -hmm. a very similar program last year. And I think the impact there is that without a reservation system, we're telling people, you know, get here early and they're listening. And I think the beauty of the confidence of knowing I have a spot, there's a lot of people that are going to come in a little bit later and come Mm -hmm. at their time and come at their leisure and not have everybody on the roadways at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also important just to reiterate that our Castle Peak parking lots are free every day of the week. And that's a really important part of this program is that this system is going to give us the ability to load both parking lots at the same time. We have less of a capacity issue, more of a speed of load-in issue. And loading Mm -hmm. both of those lots simultaneously is what we needed to solve too. And Mm -hmm. we have pretty high level confidence that this is going to help to speed up the load-in and have fewer cars on the road. So obviously an an issue that inspires a lot of passion, right? Among your longtime skiers. How has the reaction been so far, Amy? And how have you been able to respond in a thoughtful way that shows you're listening, but also acknowledges the reality that 
Tahoe is changing and the resort needs to evolve with it to help regionally manage some of these issues. Yeah. And, you know, of course, this is impactful to our community, but I would say that while these types of strategies, they come with change management, largely our community is acknowledging that material change needs to happen. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the condition of the market is very different from early versions that were moved forward in our industry, you know, five, six years ago, where the challenges were starting, but there wasn't a lot of really great proofs of concept when it comes to solving these programs. And I think because we have those now, and because we've really taken to heart listening to our community, sharing the details of how it's going to work why we're doing it. And I think, you know, this is well beyond just our resort here, but this is a big conversation within our community, with our community leaders, between community and industry, because it's something that everybody has to solve to in this industry. And I think the desire for change is just really been heard. And, you know, so far the response has been a lot of intrigue into how it's going to work and acknowledging that change needed to happen. All right. So no matter how much you pay for parking, the Epic Pass is still a bargain. And there are all kinds of ways to get in the front door at North Star with an Epic Pass. You need an Epic, the top level Epic Pass if you want unlimited access. But the Epic Local and the Tahoe Local also provide access with holiday blackouts. And then you have this great Tahoe Value Pass, which blacks out holidays and Saturdays. Just stepping back here, Amy, why is Vail set it up this way so that there's so many different ways for skiers to get in the door at North Star? You can also use the Epic Day Pass, too, by the way. Yeah, first glance, it's a lot. It's a wide variety (laughs) of access options, but we have a wide variety of guests who come and ski right in North Star and they have different schedules and different desires to how they visit. And it really does make sense to offer just this wide variety of options. And it's effective. It's effective Mm -hmm. product strategy in calibrating capacity and calibrating Mm -hmm. the optionality against the capacity that we have. You know, we've seen it be very effective. We've seen, as I mentioned, just a lot of growth midweek where we have some white space and this product strategy definitely drives us out of peak. And we have, while there's complexity here, I think another piece of how this is effective is that we have a lot of continuity year on year on what we're offering and Mm -hmm. it's really helping us to find the balance. So each of these passes, these Tahoe local and the Tahoe value passes, they each have some really cool features. And I'm not sure if most skiers are aware of the Tahoe local actually comes with five combined days. You can split between Vail, Beaver Creek, Breckenridge, Keystone, Crested Butte, and Park City. So you could do five days of Vail. You could do one day at each of the Colorado ones, however you want to split those up. Just anecdotally talking to your locals, how popular is that? How many of them take advantage of that pass and then pop out to Colorado or Utah once or twice a year? Yeah. Anecdotally, I think there's a lot of utilization and Mm -hmm. excitement to be able to take an annual trip out to the Rockies resorts. And I think this year there was just so much excitement for snow and all of our regions having just such great conditions. I have a a lot of friends who live here in the community (laughs) and it's part of their their annual pilgrimage and Mm -hmm. um, such an amazing product. So if I had to pinpoint the one thing that I think is 
most broken about modern skiing, I'd have to say it's Saturdays, right? Everyone's done a pretty good job blacking out holidays, but Saturdays don't tend to get lumped into those blackout tiers. However, the Tahoe Value Pass does blackout Saturdays at North Star. Just curious from your point of view, Amy, how effective that pass has been at making the weekend experience more enjoyable at North Star while still giving local skiers a really good option to ski there a whole bunch during the winter. Yeah, to your point, Stuart, I mean, it's such a great solve to the day of the week that has historically just been peak for everybody. We see it effective in a lot of ways, particularly now as a lot of people that live here locally have new flexibilities in their schedule as mm-hmm. to when they ski. And if they have optionality to come up on a Tuesday, mm-hmm. um, they're doing that. And we are certainly seeing that. And so I think this is a more compelling product than ever. Mm-hmm. And we see over the last couple of years, our peakiest Saturdays are less peaky. And yeah, that is nice. by design. Uh, one other way that Vale has attempted to limit crowds is by limiting lift ticket sales. And according to the earnings report last week, 75% of visitation now takes place on pre-purchase products. So I know that the volume there is shrinking as far as folks who buy lift tickets or, or you know, let alone at the window, just buy them in advance. But Vale did limit them for every one of its resorts every day last season. How often did you have to pull that lever at North Star? How often did you have to say, okay, we're sold out? Yeah, so this limitation lever is one that we track just well out ahead of time. I mean, we were already starting to look at the sales data as we go into the season. And it's an option that it's so great to have. And it's not one that we needed to use significantly last Mm -hmm. season. And um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves over time. But this last season, just coincidentally, the times that we saw the sales needing to utilize, they were impacted by significant storms to take down mm. the map. So this is a strategy okay. that I think will continue to optimize and know how to best utilize in future years. All right, Amy, I'm sure that you're getting amped up for the 2023 to 24 ski season. What's your big focus here? Is there, you know, aside from capital improvements, is there kind of a, a theme that you're rallying the team around for this year? Yeah, it's coming up quick. I mean, just seeing snow (laughs) on the hills is so exciting. And we have mixed emotion on putting our bike operation away for the season, but we are shifting our focus to winter. And, you know, while last year was one for the books and we're putting our 50th to bed, I think we're just as stoked on our 51st. I think Mm -hmm. coming out of last year, the energy and momentum from this team, you know, last year for North Star was really a return to full operations for the first time since the pandemic and getting everything open last year, including up on the mountain, but also down here in our village, it was severely impacted over the pandemic years. And to Mm -hmm. return to that full vibrancy this last year, it just felt so great to have it alive. In addition to reopening everything, we opened a new restaurant in the spring mm-hmm. that yeah. you know still feels very new going to the season. And then we're also opening a cafe called Vu, kind of a play off rendezvous and nice. connection. And you know that is a big theme for us this next year is just the sense of welcoming. And the creative concept around VU is this platform of welcoming and honoring the guests that are 
coming up into our resort. And we're really excited about that concept. A couple of other things that we're really excited about, we have a new arrival experience and access Mm. experience with the option through my Epic app. Mm -hmm. And this is going to provide for the ability to, I'm sure you've heard about this, but to use your phone as your pass Mm -hmm. and to really take any friction out of that experience. So we're really excited to see how that's going to work this year. Well, lots of cool stuff coming up, Amy. Leave us with this. You mentioned briefly earlier toast, and that is a place, but it's also a tradition at North Star. So tell us about this and how we take part in it when we come to North Star. Yeah, I what a great thing to finish on. It's just such a cool tradition that is part of our brand. And you mentioned plays, you know, we have this beautiful location that is up on East Ridge that is dedicated to toast and comically it was so buried last year. So we had to be really creative of where and when we had our toast and, you know, beyond that location, it's something that is really a cool part of our culture. And we really tried to bring it into our opening of Comstock and our kickoff of our 50th and the closing of the 50th year. And so it's got touch points beyond just the mm-hmm. tradition up on the the ridge, but it is beloved and planned. And you can join us up on the East Ridge for a toast on a basis that'll be scheduled uh, on our website this year, but it's a tradition that's very much in our hearts and excited for this next year. And what do we get to toast up there? So there's a tradition, there's a, mm-hmm. a traditional toast that mm-hmm. that we lead there, but we really embrace just, you know, we all have a shared love of North Star, both uniquely and as a community. And every story and every toast is unique to every mm-hmm. person that visits. So looks like we need to look forward to a toast if you're going to come visit us. <laughs> So who leads that? Is it a big group thing and there's one person that kind of stands on the picnic table or how does it work? Yeah, it's usually led by one of our teammates that just takes it as an opportunity to kick off the toast and bring it together and set the stage for our guests to connect with each other. Is it a champagne toast? Do you have your choice of drinks? What's in the glass? It's traditionally a champagne toast and Mm -hmm. there's options up there as well if you're looking for something different. All right. Love it. Thank you, Amy. I Listen, I really appreciate all of your time today. Really exciting for the 2023 to 24 ski season. Hopefully you get a nice clean winter without uh, too much snow, but just enough to make everyone happy. So I wish you the best of luck of it. I really appreciate your time today. and, And thanks again. Let's do it again. Well, thanks for having me, Stuart, and cheers to that and to the season ahead. That's Amy Oren, Vice President and General Manager of North Star California. Thank you so much for that, Amy. You did an awesome job leading North Star through a bomber year, and you just crushed it in the interview, too. Really appreciate you and appreciate the time. Thank you all very much for listening. I have another huge Vail pod just around the corner as I am scheduled to connect with Park City Chief Operating Officer Deirdre Walsh. East Coast, I've got you covered as well with an upcoming conversation with Adatash GM Brandon Swartz and Tahoe Skiers that will not be the last you hear out of the region this year. 
as I will be hosting Mount Rose General Manager Greg Gaverletz on the pod next month. If this is your first time listening to the Storm Skiing Podcast, I also encourage you to go into the archive and dig out the conversations I recorded last April with Palisades Tahoe President Dee Byrne and Heavenly GM Tom Fortune. The very best way to get new Storm Skiing Podcast episodes the moment they are live is to pop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers will receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.